Uh, if you still have your Bibles, you can open them back to Psalm 19. I will turn to Hebrews in a little while, but uh, you can stay in Psalm 19 for now. We're starting a new sermon series this week. For the next five weeks, we will ask five of the biggest questions that a human being can ever ask. These are questions that are at the core of who we are, of what it means to be a human being. And they're questions that we're all asking either subconsciously, below the level of our conscious thoughts, at the level of our gut, at the level of our actions, or in our conscious thought and in our conversations. And so maybe you yourselves have thought these questions, or you've heard a friend think these questions, but we want you to know that this is a place uh, where real questions, deep questions, big questions are valued and are engaged with thoroughly and rationally and not dismissively uh, without the use of straw man arguments, but with, with rigorous honesty. And the reason we're doing that is because our world is desperate for deep people. Life is short much too short to ignore big questions. And there's this uh, great saint who's lived and died now named A.W. Tozer. And A.W. used to say this. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That what comes into your mind when you hear the word God is the most important thing about you. For from that thought, for from that philosophy, for from that worldview, all else grows. Everything else about you, to your approach to life, to parenting, your approach uh, to race and politics, will grow out of these things that I think about God, who God is, what God like, and whether there is a God. This week, we want to simply ask, Does God exist? Some of you are old enough to have lived through the space race. And you remember when the Russians managed to put a man into orbit first. You remember, maybe, what Nikita Khrushchev said after that? He said, we have been to space. And we did not find God there. And maybe for you, that was a moment that that you can remember that rocked you a little bit. For me, I wasn't old enough for that. You can't tell from looking at me and my gray hair, uh, but that happened a little bit before I was born. One of those moments for me was, was when I was 13 years old. In 1999, April, I was an eighth grader at Hillcrest Middle School. And two teenage boys walked into Columbine High School. And they murdered 13 people and injured another 24 in an event that shook America to its core, but which is sadly repeated again and again and again. But in the the news reports after that story and in the wake of that story and in sermons after that horrific, god-awful event, there came this story, which may or may not be true. There are several accounts that say uh, it's it's been convoluted and mistaken and messed up. Uh, But the story, as I learned it there in my eighth grade classroom, sitting around with other students thinking about an active gunman in our classroom, was that one of the shooters walked up to a young woman and asked her, Do you believe in God? And she said, yes, and he killed her. And we all sat around in our good Sunday school church clothes and our flannel boards, and we all asked ourselves, too, how would I answer that question and why? 
But I have an admission to tell you. The first is that I grew up inside of Christianity, inside of the church. My parents have told me about God since before I can remember. I've read the Bible and known Bible stories as long as I've known anything. I've never questioned God as a kid growing up more than I questioned my multiplication tables or I questioned gravity or I questioned the spelling of a word. And when I was 12, that knowledge became personal. It became real to me. It became more than multiplication tables to me. And there's never been a period in my life where I actively disbelieved in God, where I was certain that there was no God. And in that way, I may not be like you. But still, there have been many, many, many days when I was driving down the road in my 2004 Jeep Wrangler with the top off, and I wondered, is all this religion stuff, all this experience where I feel like God has showed up and talked to me, is that all a hallucination? Am I stupid to believe in God when so many people much smarter and much wiser than me do not believe in God? Does God really exist or do I simply believe this because it was what I was taught? Do I really believe that the rational evidence and my personal experience make God the most obvious explanation for the phenomena? Or do I believe simply because I've been told to believe? Or because I'm too cowardly to contradict my family or to bear the social cost of atheism? These are the questions I asked driving down the road because of the questions I swim in. I love to listen to non-Christians destroy the Christian faith. I love to listen to arguments against God's existence and against the Bible's trustworthiness and against Jesus' deity and against the resurrection because it's my obligation to listen to these arguments carefully and lovingly, lovingly and then to try them on so that I can talk compassionately and with intelligence and with understanding to people who disagree with me. And I could point to my own evidence and my own experience as a more beautiful explanation for the same data. I've walked through periods of tremendous emotional and physical and spiritual pain, which made me doubt the existence of God's goodness. We're going to look at that question next week. Why does God allow pain and suffering? We all ask these questions. It seems to be ingrained in us. All human beings ask God questions. We have questions of meaning and morality and intimacy. What are we here for? What should we do? Why do I love people? Anytime you wonder about whether life has purpose or what's the point or why you love your children so much, why is there affection for these other creatures, or why you're so attached to the fortunes of one particular sports team versus another one, you are asking God questions whether you know it or not. And all civilizations throughout time and space as history as we know it have practiced some form of religion or based in metaphysical realities, based in more than the material world. And as far as we know, there have been famous and there have been numerous individual who, individuals who disbelieved in the existence of gods or, the, or a god 
or in the supernatural, but we have yet to discover an entirely atheistic culture or society. And so there seems to be inside of each of us this meaning-maker-making hunger inside of us, a desperate hunger to experience the transcendence, to find meaning in events. We're, we're not content with just random data points on a curve, and so we try to make them go together into something we call history or narrative or story or worldview or philosophy, but we are constantly trying to draw a constellation out of the data and our experience to find meaning to explain it all. There seems to be an innate understanding that the transcendent exists. And more than that, that it must be placated or appeased, that somehow all is not well with our relationship with God or the gods. And so religions have come up with thousands of different cultic rites, from sacrificing children to sacrificing time. But nearly all societies have found themselves asking, how do I make things right between me and the spiritual powers of the universe? But let me ask you a question. Could it be that all of our questions about meaning and purpose are ultimately delusional? Could it be that we hunger for the existential and the transcendent and yet food for that hunger does not exist? That ultimately our quest for meaning and joy is futile? One thinker who's challenged me deeply over and over again, who writes poetically and beautiful and who disbelieves passionately in the existence of God in the 20th century is a man named Bertrand Russell. And he said this, he said, such an outline, but even more purposeless, more void of meaning is the world which science presents for our belief. Amid such a world, if anywhere, our ideals henceforth must find a home. That man is the product of causes which had no, pre no prevision of the end that they are achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs are all but the outcome of accidental collocations co of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all labors of the ages, that all of the devotion, all of the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried underneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Bertrand is saying that in a world where all of us, our hopes, our dreams, our heroism, and our cowardice is determined by the, the random collocation of atoms. There is no meaning. And so the only firm, friend, firm foundation for your life is unyielding despair. So do you believe that? That only unyielding despair and nihilism provide a foundation in which to move into the world that is not wishful thinking or delusional? Or do you believe that the foundation for your life, that all of your existence is somehow more akin to love and relationships 
or maybe that the foundation of all existence might just be in joy or in hope, these seemingly unquenchable longings of the human heart, whether that heart is found in middle-class America or Polish gulags or Rwandan genocidal churches. Have you ever doubted the existence of God? Have you ever decided based on the evidence that God does not exist? The good news is God is not afraid of your questions and neither is Oakland, neither are we. Life is too short to delay the big questions. And more, God has built you with faculties to ask the good questions, faculties that are not present in any other life form on the planet. You have self-consciousness. You are aware that you exist. You can think, and you can even think about thinking. If you don't know that, then play golf. These, you have the ability to, to use language and to write history You have reason and the gift of relationship, and these are gifts given to you to invite you into the process of discovery, of discovering yourself and discovering the world around you and discovering the God who built all of it. You're welcome here at Oakland so long as you have questions. You are welcome to email me your questions, to bring them up in Sunday school, to ask your family members, but if you've got it all figured out, you can leave now. Because we're not much interested in perfect people or finished products, but we love, love, love people who are relentlessly committed to growing. So if God's not afraid of our questions, just maybe God answers our questions. Maybe God moves into our questions and answers them with us. And what does God say about God's existence? Psalm 19 I've never preached this, and I've always wanted to. It was read at my wedding, and I preached it in premarital counseling to my pastor, and he said, son, you were built to do this. Now shut up and talk to your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. The first that starts, remember, verses 1 through 6 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice, it still goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the horizon, and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Most of us who are not astrophysicists or cosmologists take it for granted that our universe exists, that stars and planets exist, but it is very scientifically surprising that anything exists. If any of us think, we think about the fact that that some planets support life, but others do not. But it is even more basic that there would be a universe that could support life with planets and stars, with the right number of large stars and small stars, with planets of the right size and density, that they could, uh, the right spacing from the stars, that they might have water and oxygen and the right atmospheric pressure and atmospheric uh, chemicals. But underneath all of this, our universe and its structure are determined by a large number of independent 
fundamental constants. Numbers such as the speed of light, or the gravitational constant, or Planck's constant, or the cosmological constant, or the mass of electrons and neutrons and protons, or the, 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 the ratio between electromagnetic and gravitational forces. All of these things are axiomatic to the laws of physics. You cannot do physics without these constants, and they don't change. They're not determined by physics. And so scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers must have been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered even by a hair's breadth, no physical interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. There'd be no hydrogen or oxygen. There'd be no water. There would be no laughter. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant was varied by just 1 in 10 to the 60th parts, none of it would exist. 10 to the 60th parts. To give you an idea of how exceedingly narrow that is, Consider the fact that there are only 10 to the 14th cells in your body. Or the fact that there have only been 10 to the 20th power seconds since time began. 10 to the 60th power. If it was changed by a decimal point so far away you could not see it with a telescope, the universe would collapse upon itself or expand so rapidly that life could never develop. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by what's called the cosmological constant, which uh, Albert Einstein hypothesized but could not prove, and then the evidence has, has grown uh, through multi-star uh, bursts lately, that if this value was changed by a mere 1 in 10 to the 120th parts, the universe would expand too rapidly or too slowly. But in either case... The universe, again, would be life-prohibiting. These numbers are astronomical. You cannot fathom them. I struggle to, and so maybe this will help. If you took dimes and you stacked them on every square inch of the United States of, of North America and you stacked dimes, the coins, all the way to the moon, and then you did likewise on a billion other continents the same size, And in that stack of dimes, there was one painted red. And you asked your friend to reach in and pull out a dime. And he did. Chances of him pulling out that dime are more numerous than the chances of the gravitational constant. And it's not even the small, the, the, it's not even the, the most precise of the numbers. It falls somewhere in the middle of these dozen or so numbers. When you add them all up, it becomes so improbable that it becomes almost unfathomable. It takes a, a, a leap of faith unestimable. And so physicists all over the world, including a famous atheist uh, phil physicist and philosophers, have a Summarize many of the same things. Sir Martin Rees says, wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning in the universe. 
Stephen Hawking, who just died recently, uh, said, quote, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to, be, seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life, end quote. The astrophysicist and cosmologist at Cambridge University, a man named Dr. Fred Hoyle, concludes, a common sense, of a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. That's a funny line. He talks about super intellect and monkeys in the same thing. <laughs> it really is genius. And he says, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Our universe seems to scientists and to me to be very much designed and designed very precisely to provide for the possibility of stars and planets and life and love. Indeed, the heavens and the cosmos, the existence of anything at all is a declaration of the glory of God. And so Psalm 19 says, when I survey the wonders, when I look out, the heavens are declaring it. The fact that stars exist, the fact that galaxies exist, the fact that there is space and time exist, it declares that there is a God. That there's often a rejection raised by atheists, and you may think this yourself, and, and I get it, that things like the human appendix or the mass extinctions of 99.9% of all life forms to ever exist does not suggest a very intelligent designer. It seems to suggest a very wasteful and incompetent or a capricious or a bad designer, if a designer at all. But let me ask you a question. You see how that conclusion about a bad designer assumes that you and I are in a position to judge the job done by the designer, that the clay can tell the potter how to do his job. But even more fundamentally, i got to ask you, where did you get this idea of good and bad, right and wrong? Because if there's no God, then there is no good or bad. There only is what is, and I can like it or not like it. It can suit my fancy or it can dissuit my fancy. But the question of morality, the question of right and wrong, of objective good and bad, evil or righteous, ceases to exist. It evaporates because I've removed the only objective framework by which that can be determined. I've said there is no, uh, there is no external fact, no external referent by which I can refer. And yet I want to refer, I want to judge God by something that can only exist if God exists. But why do you and I and everyone think in categories of right and wrong, respectable and reprehensible, of hellacious and heavenly? Why do we label things in these ways? I would, uh, more basically, why do your children fight over whether the slices of pizza are fair or not? over who gets which cookie and which seat. Because ingrained in us, there is a desire for fairness, and we are not content for this to be relative. Though we like to say that every person has the right to define right or wrong for him or herself, though we want to believe that culturally, we struggle to actually live into it positively. When we ask, if I were to ask you, if that's the, the worldview in which you move, that everyone gets to determine right and wrong for himself, and I ask you, is there anyone in the world 
who is doing things that you believe they should stop doing no matter if they personally believe that their actions are correct. You must invariably have to say yes for things like infanticide or uh, female genitalia mutilation in Africa or for uh, genocide in uh, whatever part of the world or for the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Well, then doesn't that mean that you believe that there is some kind of morality that is just there, that's not defined by me or you, but must be an abiding presence regardless of what a person feels or thinks? Either that or you can't tell anybody what to do unless you are more powerful than they are. So you wonder, why do I consider this moral question? Why do I even ask, is God good? Where did I get the idea of goodness from? If there is no God, then there is what is. And I can like it or not like it. I can say, I don't like this world. I say that pretty regularly, and I believe in a God. But I can't say this world is bad, unless by the word bad, I simply mean not suited to my taste and preferences. But apologetics and reason, cosmology and physics can only get you so far. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 summarizes it this way. It says, what may be known about God is plain to see because God has made it plain to all people. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. From nature and from science, the Bible is saying, I can deduce that there is a God, that this God is all-powerful, and that everything that exists came into creation at his hand, that all energy and matter were created by him. But that's not the sum of Christian thinking. That is not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus or a Christian. In fact, it's not unusual to believe in God. It's quite unusual not to believe in God. Recent studies have said anywhere between 80 and 85% of people believe in God, even among those who don't consider themselves religious at all. And so it's fair to assume that most of us believe in God and most of the people we, believe, we know believe in God. The question is more what God do we believe in and what does that God manifest and then how do I know anything about that God? You see, all I've been talking about treats God in a very general way, and it treats knowledge the way I know anything in a very specific way, that all knowledge is inductively designed, inductively deduced by reason, by observation and reason. But Christianity is not ultimately a religion. It is a relationship. It is not so much learning how to multiply, but learning how to love. It cannot be memorized like periodic tables. It can only be learned by following a person. And this comes from the fact that we believe the world has meaning and that the meaning of the world is intensely personal, that you and I were built for relationships, built to be known and to be loved, to love and to give ourselves in love, and that the God of the universe did so because God is a person, not a force or a nebulous fact or a gravitational constant, but God is a deity who reveals himself throughout history. 
in contrast to the assumption that real knowledge must be factual and therefore somehow impersonal, divine revelation is the ultimate demonstration that true knowledge is fundamentally personal. We know a person only as he or she chooses to reveal themselves. And only as our spirit is sensitive and trustful to respond to this revelation, says Leslie Newbegin. In this context, the knowledge of God is pictured as a gift of grace imparted to those who would receive it. It is not a piece of metaphysical information, but a personal revelation of, a loving, of the loving will of the Creator God who longs for His creatures to be reconciled to Him. And the church is the community through whom God is reaching out into the world to reveal and to reconcile himself. However, imperfectly, we may do that. You see, there is a difference between knowing about something or observing it and then having a relationship with them. I only know you as you reveal yourself to me in your actions and in your words. And what we see in the God of the universe is that God is revealing God's self, that God is constantly showing us pieces of his character, both through nature, both through cosmological constants and gravity, both through, uh, uh, through actions in history, but even more specifically through his son. I told you I would get to Hebrews. Uh, oh, I got to show you in... Uh, Psalm 19, we talk through the moral arguments in the middle of Psalm 19. You see that in, in the middle of Psalm 19, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. He is making an argument for morality, that it is in God and God's law that morals are built. But he does not stop there. In verse 11, this author, Psalm David, turns and he starts talking not about God, but starts talking to God. Look at verse 11. He says, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. And then he asks God a question. Who can discern their own faults? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You probably didn't realize it, but from verse 1 all the way through verse 10, the psalmist is only talking about God in the universe, about what can be known objectively and, 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 and just through deduction. But in verse 11, he moves from knowledge that he is discerned to knowledge that he is accepted, that has been revealed to him, to a God who is personal. And so... We see in this psalm, and we see in Hebrews chapter 1, that God is constantly revealing himself to us, that God is revealing God's self to us. Hebrews chapter 1, that we'll study in depth in a few weeks, says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe." The Son, that is Jesus the Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Do you know what it's like to know somebody because they choose to tell you about themselves? I pray God has blessed you with a relationship intimate enough that when you sit down at the dinner table or on long car rides and you forget, you run out of things to talk about, the conversation moves to your cheapest, your, your, your deepest fears and your greatest longings. Where you get down and you say, I am struggling right now. 
and I'm scared to death of this, where you get to voice the catastrophes in your head to a person who will listen to them and not laugh at you but help you sort them with truth. I pray that there is someone in the world who knows what you care about most and what you struggle with most often. Because it is in that, it is in that when I peel back the layers of this armor that I wear in the society around me that I am known and revealed. And in Jesus Christ, God has done that. God has written it in, the, in general manner in the skies, and then he's written it in particular manner in his word and through the prophets and prophecy. And then he has showed up with skin on and he has made the introduction. Not long after the cosmonauts got back from space and they declared that we have been to space and we have discovered that there is no God. Uh, a famous British uh, writer and Christian uh, named C.S. Lewis, he wrote this kind of snarky, satirical letter. And he said this, he said, looking for God or for heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all of Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or find Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. If there was an idiot who thought that plays exist on their own without an author, our belief in Shakespeare would not be much affected by his saying quite truly that he had studied all the plays and never found Shakespeare in them. If there were a person who said that God does exist because he had searched through all of the cosmos and had not found him, it would not shake my belief any more than a man who said, I've read all of Shakespeare and he's not in the play. To some, C.S. Lewis writes, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. Hang it all, we're already in space anyways. Don't you realize every year we go a huge circular tour through space? <laughs> but send a saint up in a spaceship and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. You see, much depends on the seeing eye. End quote. Which is why the Bible says that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. But the natural eye and the human ear cannot in a different place, C.S. Lewis will use an illustration that I have used many, many times. And the same thing he'll say, you see, when I was an atheist, I did not think I could know God any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. And that's true if it were up to Hamlet to get to, to find Shakespeare. Hamlet could never do such. But if Shakespeare decided he wanted to introduce himself to Hamlet, he could write Shakespeare, the character, into the play and introduce himself that way. And in Jesus Christ, the God of heaven has written himself into human history, into skin and flesh and blood and family, into wood and nails and death, into hell itself, and into the glory of resurrection to make the introduction to you in ways that you can understand in human history and space and human experience. And so you don't have to try to figure it out from how fast the, human, how fast the universe is, is expanding, how long the universe has existed. You don't have to guess from gravitational constants or moral absolutes. You can meet God. 
And that may sound absolutely crazy. It sounded crazy to me when a few days ago, maybe a few weeks ago, I don't remember the exact date, I was driving down the road with a good friend sitting next to me in the shotgun of my car, and they said, Andrew, why do you believe in God? How do you know God exists? Was the exact question. How do you know God exists? Without thinking, I said, you know, I could give you a ton of evidence. I could give you a ton of facts about the universe and about the improbability of it all, about history and the reliability of the Bible. But the short answer is, I believe God exists. Because when I was 14, I met the dude. And I can no longer, no more disbelieve in God than I can in my wife. For I have met him, and he has embraced me. So you don't need to look at the stars, you need to look at the cross. You may come to believe in the existence of God by staring into the night sky. But you will come to accept and to receive the love of God by staring in the face of a crucified man in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. God, all I know how to do is put people in a room and where you are, where we are, where I know your presence is here and pray that you would introduce yourselves. My goal is just to put people I love with the one I love most and say, do you see him? Can you meet him? Can you hear him fall in love with him? And if there is a man or a woman or a child here today, if there is a person who is seeing you, who is open to doubting their doubts, who is open to doubting the certainty with which they have disbelieved, they can open themselves to you today and every day by starting to pray, even if they don't believe you exist, by just saying, God, if you're there, I'm open. By starting each day by saying, God, if you're there, help me. And finishing every day by saying, God, if you're there, thank you. Because I believe if they will pray that you will reveal yourself, that all who seek find, that all who knock are answered. That I believe this because your word says it. And if there's someone who is seen somehow metaphysically and transcendentally and gloriously your love today and they want to trust you with all they are, they can do it by, by praying. A simple prayer that says, God, I give all of what I know of me to all of what I know of you. I know I'm a sinner. And I have fallen short. But I believe you love me and you proved it on the cross. So I will follow you until I die. In Jesus' name, amen.